0: Sex offenders are among the most feared and demonized people in America, especially when one moves in close to home.
1: I have a 10-year-old daughter, and I let her roam. And now, you know, I'm scared to death now. I don't want her out of my house.
0: In an effort to prevent future sex crimes, many states restrict where offenders can live after their release from prison.
2: The problem is not so much where they live as where they are, what they're doing. In many ways, it creates a false sense of security.
0: Other states keep some offenders locked up even after they've completed their criminal sentences. It's a controversial practice that critics argue is unconstitutional. I'm Todd Melby. In the next hour, reporter Diane Richard and I will explore whether these get-tough laws are the best way to prevent future sex crimes. We talk to offenders, experts, and worried citizens. Our documentary is called No Brother of Mine.
3: This story contains sexual subject matter and descriptions of violent behavior. Listener discretion
0: is advised.
4: From Two Below Zero, independent producers of public media.
0: Wouldn't it just be cheaper to lock these people up and keep them away from us?
5: Last call for Joe!
6: The way society looks at us, they have a right to be scared. They have a right to look at us as if we are Ugly
5: people because we did ugly things. So the rape murderer, I think, has come to stand for in our policy mind the entire range of sexual offenders.
4: You know, I told some of my friends and I told my mom and they got really scared for me, but I just this isn't this Reggie is not the old Reggie.
7: The big lie. Is that most of the people who we have in prison for sex crime would do it again if we let them out.
8: If you get one of them wrong and they go out and commit another offense, that's a horrible situation that no one in my position wants to be in.
0: Sex crimes are a radioactive issue. Sex offenders are among the most feared and demonized people in America. To most people, the term conjures up images of child rapists and murderers and of their victims like Drew Shadeen, Adam Walsh, and Megan Kenka.
3: In response to these horrific crimes, legislators have passed hundreds of new get-tough laws to regulate the conduct and whereabouts of released sex offenders. These laws include internet registries, neighborhood notification for high-risk offenders, and restrictions affecting where released offenders can live.
0: And these laws almost always pass by large margins. It's one thing Democrats and Republicans agree on.
3: Some of these laws seem like common sense. Who wouldn't want to know if a convicted rapist moves in down the street?
0: Others are more questionable, like the one in Maryland that prevents released offenders from handing out candy on Halloween. Or the Miami ordinance that's so restrictive about where sex offenders can live, the only place left for them is under a bridge.
3: I'm Diane Richard.
0: And I'm Todd Milby.
3: In 2005, we wrote a letter to the Minnesota Department of Corrections. We asked if we could interview people convicted of sex crimes. At first, prison officials were reluctant to grant us access, but we explained our goals. We wanted to find out if these post-prison laws work.
0: And we wanted to take an in-depth look at a subject that most people don't even want to think about. Ultimately, we got permission.
3: Since then, we've gotten to know four inmates, Reggie, Ronnie, Tyrell, and Michael, in many ways, these men represent the complexity of the issue. Their crimes span a spectrum of sexual violence. All are felons. All of them completed a sex offender treatment program.
0: We spent time with these men in prison and since their release. And over the past few years, we've followed their reintegration into society.
3: The documentary you're about to hear is called No Brother of Mine.
9: Hey, Mrs. Reggie. It's 10.30, and I'm heading out to deliver that vehicle. Talk to you later.
0: Bye. That's Reggie. He just got off the phone with his probation officer. All
9: right, so we'll go ahead and lock up the house here.
0: Reggie is a father, a Catholic, a student, and a salesman. In 2003, he was convicted of attempted rape.
3: On this night, we're driving in a Jeep Commander with a serious new car smell. Reggie's dropping it off personally. Right out of prison, he got a job selling cars for a local dealership. He was released from prison eight months ago. Now, how did you work this out with your parole officer?
9: Well, I was up front with him right away. I told him exactly what was going on. In a way, it's really good that you guys are here because it validates what I'm doing at this particular time. Normally, I'd be in a home, probably sleeping because it's 1130. So I usually hit the hay around this time.
3: Reggie's about six feet tall and in his mid-30s. He's handsome in a Keanu Reeves sort of way. He's been on the job for less than a year, and already he's one of the dealership's top salesmen. If
9: you have any questions on the truck, how do you run it? <laughs> <laughs> one thing I will tell you uh, my manager suggested
3: because we first interviewed Reggie on his last day in prison.
9: My name is Reggie, and I'm a sex offender, and I'm currently incarcerated at the MCF Lionel Lakes facility, and I'm going to be released tomorrow on 8 06.
3: Reggie was convicted of attempted rape, a crime he admits to. He asked us not to use his last name. He's been at this Minnesota correctional facility, MCF, almost four years.
0: Reggie used to party. Even though he was married and had a son, he liked to go to strip clubs and drink. That's what he was doing on the night of his crime.
9: Well, I remember it was a
0: Wednesday, and uh, I
9: was looking to meet some friends at a bar, and I was hoping to go out and have some drinks. Uh, Meet some women and go home with one of them. He met a woman in
0: her 20s. They went bar hopping.
9: And on the way home, that's when the sexual offending occurred um, uh, in an abandoned parking lot where I sexually assaulted her. Mm -hmm. And what exactly did you do? Uh, I violently ripped open her shirt and told her we were going to do this. And uh, at some point, when she started crying and pleading
0: for me to stop, is when I, I stopped. She called the police. He was arrested two hours later.
3: Date rape is one of the most common sex crimes. Carl Hansen is a researcher at Public Safety Canada. That's a national agency that oversees law enforcement policy and crime prevention.
10: The two biggest categories of victims have to do with date rape among late adolescent girls, usually uh, in drunken parties by their peers. The second biggest category are children who are molested by family and extended family
3: U.S. statistics back that up. Only a small minority of victims, 14%, are sexually assaulted by complete strangers. Another 26% are sexually assaulted by family members. And 60% are sexually assaulted by people they know. Neighbors, coaches, bosses, guys they met in bars.
0: Date rapists rarely show up in the criminal justice system. That makes Reggie's case unusual. His victim pressed charges, which he later fought in court. He was convicted anyway.
3: Four years later, he sees things differently.
9: I had a really skewed um, viewpoint on women. I thought that all women were uh, sexual uh, creatures. They were for my, my pleasure. And as I look back, it was very degrading. It, it um, took away the dignity of the human person.
0: In prison, Reggie attended a daily sex offender treatment program. He says it forced him to confront his thought patterns and to question the cultural messages around him. He became a Catholic and received treatment for alcoholism.
2: Hey, Todd, it's Reggie calling you back. I say sorry,
9: it took me so long. It's been one of those crazy days. But the good news is I did I did sell some cars today. So,
11: anyways, I want to
9: get back to you. Uh, my number. Well, you can try the cell phone seven
0: six three. The next time we see Reggie, he's gotten that job selling cars. He shows us around his apartment, in the diceiest part of Minneapolis.
9: Still a work in progress. We have yet to get the uh, the furniture in. Uh, in the living room, but we have, you know, a kitchen table and uh, all the necessities right now. Reggie's apartment is
0: filled with items he bought off Craigslist, comfy uh, but uh, mismatched. The living room walls are painted the color of tang. Scented candles make the room smell like vanilla. A portrait of Pope John Paul II hangs above the couch.
3: Reggie's days are almost as structured as in prison. That's because he's on house arrest. For one year, he can only leave his apartment for work, AA, or church, and his probation officer can stop by any time to check in on him and to get a urine sample.
0: We asked him how things are different for him now. In the past, I really didn't care. I didn't really
9: know what I was doing was wrong. I mean, I, I mean certainly I knew what i the choice that I made was wrong. There's no question about that, but uh, I would go to strip clubs, I would go to uh, Associate with people that really didn't hold me accountable and that's the difference between now and then is that I'm with people that will hold me accountable uh, I know that if I objectify or sexualize women it's just going to go into a wrong direction and a bad path for me so I have a better understanding of, of myself and where uh,
0: my danger areas are. Reggie says at first he was wary about spending time around women then he met Tiffany at the Cathedral of St. Paul. He invited us back a month or so later to meet her.
9: We're sitting together uh, that first night and I think really uh, that was kind of like, my interest was like, hmm, who's this? And <laughs> that what's this all about? And
4: well, I noticed him because he's he's a snazzy dresser because he sells cars and, and he just dresses really good.
0: After the meeting, they got to talking.
4: And he was just like, do you want to go to coffee sometime? Here's my card, just give me a call. And I threw the card away right away, because I was interested, and I couldn't be. I shouldn't be.
0: Tiffany had a boyfriend at the time. Two weeks later, they talked again.
4: That Thursday, I came to group. I was getting my wisdom teeth pulled on Friday, so I asked everyone to pray for me. And afterwards, I asked him for his card again, and he was, I mean, his face tells a story. You know what he's thinking. So he was really surprised. (laughs) And he got his card out, and he was all excited. And he said, give me a call tomorrow. And I was like, I'm getting my wisdom teeth pulled. Did you forget already? And he's like, "Okay, well, call me on Saturday, then. He came over and had dinner with my parents. And um, my mom just loved him. And then my mom, when we're leaving, goes, take care of my girl or something like that. And she doesn't say that. I mean, I take care of myself. She knows that.
0: Tiffany didn't know everything about Reggie's past, but she knew he was a felon on probation and that he had to be back for curfew. So she went over to his place. That's when he told her about his crime.
4: It's not just the fact that he told me the first night, but it's how he told me. It was just out there. It was honest. He was wounded. I could see it. He showed me that. He was real about it.
9: But I took a chance with that because I, I knew that this, it could be an issue, but I felt safe enough to just say, you know what, I'm just going to tell her and I know I'll feel better.
4: He, just that first night, was just humble. And and he told me things that scared me, obviously. But it was his humility about it. He looked me right in the eyes, and he said, this is what I did.
9: I'm learning now. It's really difficult to do that in my life. I've always liked to keep secrets. I've always liked to to appear like I'm this really good person. Uh, but in reality, I'm not.
4: You know, I told some of my friends, and I told my mom, I'm very honest with the people in my life, and, and a few of them, you know, they got really scared for me, but I just, this isn't, this Reggie is not the old Reggie.
0: By this time, they'd been together a couple of months.
9: In what you have to do a self-assessment. You have to list all your character defects and all your strengths and weaknesses, and one of my biggest weaknesses is conflict. I'm a person who's very passive when it comes to conflict i don't stick up for myself i don't assert myself in healthy ways and that's why that's what makes me so dangerous is that people think well he seems like a really nice guy but then what happens is especially when i drink alcohol or do something used uh, to drink yeah right i should say used to drink. yeah if i if i were to drink alcohol i don't understand how to put those stops up that normal people do like cognitive thinking like maybe i should just let this go when i drink um, I don't know how to do that and they become very aggressive. So, I still struggle with that. Even sober, I'll be really nice, and all of a sudden you notice I'll get like really uptight. But he's
4: not mean. He's not mean.
9: But I'm uptight.
4: But yeah. he's uptight. <laughs> he's yeah. he's he's busy, he's disconnected, yeah. and and he's just got to get stuff done, and he becomes a little obsessive-compulsive about things like cleanliness. Yeah. Like this morning he forgot to put deodorant on, <laughs> and so he's just bitching and moaning in the car, Oh, I'm just so angry, and I'm like, honey, it's deodorant. It's a small thing, and you're taking all this other stress, all these big stressors, and you're focusing it in on this tiny little thing. And then later on, we were cuddling, and I smelled his armpits, and he smelled good, and I was like, what are you so worried about?
0: Ultimately, the relationship between Reggie and Tiffany didn't last.
3: Still, experts say the ability to form positive relationships is an encouraging sign. Carl Hansen of Public Safety Canada.
10: When you find that they actually do establish a relationship with a lover and it seems to be going okay, you just sort of relax a bit. You know, It's like, okay, this is great. It's it's not everything, but it's a really good sign that they're making a a readjustment or or having some links to things which are important to keep them from offending in the
0: future. Later in this program, we'll meet Tyrell. As a teenager, he had sex with another teen and went to prison for it.
12: Just because... It says on a piece of paper, statutory rape. That doesn't mean that I raped this person, you know.
3: You're listening to a special report, No Brother of Mine. I'm Diane Richard.
0: And I'm Todd Meldy. If you're just joining us, this documentary is about sex offender policies and the patterns of behavior that often lead to sex crimes. It's a topic that may not be appropriate for all audiences.
3: When Reggie was in prison, he met Ronnie Johnson, a fellow inmate serving time for rape. They hit it off, though they're sort of an odd couple. Reggie is clean cut and suburban, Ronnie wears his hair in cornrows, and it's from the deep bayou of Louisiana. Reggie's got some college education. Ronnie dropped out at 16.
0: But they have some things in common, too. Neither had a father in his life. Both have sons that they haven't seen in years. Both are recovering alcoholics.
3: Reggie was released from prison before Ronnie. On this day, Reggie's picking up Ronnie at a halfway house. They're going to be roommates.
13: Walk down there, but I got to load all that stuff in there. see you. All right, how you all doing, right, buddy? All right. Everything hey, good? Hey, good uh, Everything all right?
3: Yeah, man. I got to load this stuff. I ain't know I had that much stuff in there either, man. So it's wild, man. <laughs> so, yeah. Released felons have man, to I do a few I things, like find housing, good. get a job, and follow the rules of their probation. Failure to do any of these things will bounce them back to prison. Was it hard to find a job?
13: Oh, yeah. Oh, man, you should have seen it. I went to some places. You know what they told me? You gotta get up out here, partner. Really? What did they say? You gotta get up out of here, cause a lot of people they don't they don't like uh, to hear about sex offenses. You know.
3: So they wouldn't even talk to you? In a way,
13: they see. One thing about being in prison, you know, when you get out here, you learn to read between the lines. You know what I'm saying? Even the temp service told me to leave. You know, they they have some feeling but not not a uh, sex offense. Yeah.
3: Were you discouraged?
13: Well, you know. It was some days, man, that I was saying, man, you know what, man, enough of this. I, I might well just go on back in there, man. This, you know, I ain't have to worry about dealing with all this stuff here, man. And it was like,
3: man. Ronnie is under special pressure because he owes more than $20,000 in back child support. He finally got a job as a warehouse handyman.
14: Man, what do you do?
9: I don't even know what you
13: do. I uh do, like, janitorial work oh, okay. up in there. I do uh, shipping and receiving. I cut steel, pipes and stuff like that. And, uh... Yesterday I was cutting up pallets, you know, I do all kind of stuff. So that's why they pay me the big bucks. Big bucks, huh? Yeah, man.
3: (laughs) Why do you think he wanted to hire you so bad?
13: Well, you looked at those skills, old Ronnie Head, you know. (laughs) And, you know, the motivation that I brought to the table, you know. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm the best.
3: (laughs) Ronnie is charismatic and easygoing, but he wasn't always this way. He says he used to party and deal drugs but the crime that put him behind bars is rape of a child.
0: We first interviewed Ronnie in prison.
13: My name is uh, Ronnie Johnson. Uh, I'm here in Lionel Lakes uh, MCF uh, prison. I'm coming on release this year here.
0: Ronnie was sentenced to eight years for raping his girlfriend's daughter. She was six years old. It was New Year's Eve, 1997. He was drunk.
13: My son's cousin, he busted in and caught me. I ended up hollering at him, slapping him, and uh. Punching the victim, the, the little girl, the child, and uh, calling her names, calling him stupid, called us stupid, and uh, they end up all running over. And we got into a big fight and called the cops, and we were landing me in.
0: Ronnie's life fits a pattern for a lot of sex offenders. His dad was an alcoholic, and rarely around. As one of ten kids, he didn't get a lot of attention. He dropped out of high school to deal coke.
3: None of these things excuse his crime and the damage he caused his victim. But it does give us a few clues. Carl Hansen of Public Safety Canada.
10: Sex offenders share many characteristics with other uh, offenders in terms of negative background. These people often have very poor parental supervision, have inconsistent and and harsh parenting, uh, very little direction, um, and very little uh, sort of
0: self-control. Ronnie's been through five years of state-mandated sexual offender treatment. He's also gone through treatment for alcoholism.
13: I am mean, I'm, I'm the type of person, I wasn't led and showed in a way in which way to go. So, you know, so that makes me a person that's really lost.
0: David DeMora is a psychologist at the Center for the Treatment of Problem Sexual Behavior in Connecticut. He says that for some sex offenders, the rehabilitation work starts from the ground up.
11: We don't have people who were doing well and one day something happened and they just stopped doing well. We have folks who literally never developed the skills, the abilities, the internal structures to make it in our society in a pro-social fashion. So in essence, we're not really rehabilitating. We're not bringing people back to some prior mode of operation. We are habilitating. We are developing, working to develop a set of skills and abilities that never existed in their repertoire. Ronnie says it's sad that it took him years in prison to straighten out.
13: This is the place where I've learned everything that I know now, you know. Most of the stuff that I learned how to talk and how to conduct myself now, it wasn't on the outside, it was in there.
0: Ronnie says the most important things he learned are how to identify his sexual triggers and control his behavior. Sex crime researcher Carl Hansen.
10: And so a lot of the interventions with offenders have to do with Learning ways of not feeling compelled to act upon your sexual thoughts. Yes, you'll have sexual thoughts. Yes, they will feel like you
0: want to do them. But you don't have to. Still, Ronnie doesn't kid himself into thinking he's cured.
13: But I don't put it past myself that I'm not still attracted to young girls because I keep it in front of me that I did it once and I'm always capable of doing something again. I had to always keep that in check.
0: Studies show that sex offender treatment programs don't greatly reduce the chances of re
3: But Carl Hansen says they do make a difference.
0: Reasonably good treatment um, can reduce
10: the probability of re-offending uh, from about 17% after five years to about 10%. You know, it's not a huge reduction, but if you actually count up the number of victims that that's prevented, that's a, a major, it's making the world a better place.
3: So how often do sex offenders reoffend? In a 2004 meta-analysis, Hansen found that within five years of release from prison, 14% of sex offenders are rearrested for a new sex crime.
0: That's lower than many people think. So is that threat of stranger danger or attacks by people unknown to the victim. Psychologist David DeMora.
11: We still want to believe that most sexual violence is committed by the few, the perverted, and the far away. Most sexual violence is, in fact, committed by people who we know, often whom we love, and, and who care for us in other ways.
0: Popular media sometimes send us a very different message. Oh, please, please, oh yourself, put your hands the latest on the series that's
14: changed laws and lives.
3: For years, To Catch a Predator was one of NBC's top-rated television shows.
14: Through a click of a mouse, your child can go
3: visit and talk The show's producers posed as teenagers online and wooed men into houses with hidden cameras. When the men showed up, reporters confronted them. It made thrilling TV. Welcome to Dateline. I'm Stone Phillips. And I'm Ann Curry. More but it gives
0: people a skewed vision of most sex crimes. David DeMora.
11: What they don't understand, of course... Is that more often than not, children have more to risk from their families and from their family's friends than they do from strangers. That stranger sexual assault is extremely rare, and that a uh, stranger sexual assault that results in the death of a child is extremely, extremely rare. You would not know that from, from television.
3: Another assumption is that sex offenders are hardwired to reoffend. Research shows that only a very small proportion commit serial sex crimes. Franklin Zimmering is a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley.
7: Why do we assume it's so high? Because we further assume that if somebody has a deviant sexual impulse, we either cure that deviant sexual impulse or they're going to act on it. Well, that certainly isn't true of what we know about drugs and smoking and other kinds of criminal behavior. Why do we think it's true in sex offenders?
3: Because with sex offenses, no one, not legislators, not the public, is willing to risk a possible new crime. Recently, at least five states have imposed the death penalty for rape of a child.
7: The big lie is that most of the people who we have in prison for sex crime would do it again if we let them out. The uncomfortable truth is that a minority of them would, but they do enough of it so that we want to keep a lot more of them locked up. And rather than face our own true preferences, we tell ourselves a convenient
0: lie. Uh, Welcome, and thank you for attending the meeting tonight. I'm Chief Johansson with the Anoka Police Department. This is a community notification meeting for two Level 3 predatory offenders that will be moving into We're at
3: a public meeting in a Twin Cities suburb. Police and prison officials are speaking to a crowd at a local high school. Mugshots of two men flash on the screen. The men will soon be released into the neighborhood.
4: He is required to register as a predatory offender for life. That means that for the rest of his life, he has to provide information about where he lives, where he works, if he goes to school, where that is any changes in his appearance and any
14: vehicles he drives.
3: Those words don't calm the fears of Andrea Tangan. She lives two blocks away from where the sex offenders will be staying. They did it more than once
1: when they were first sent to prison. And in my opinion, people like that, they're not rehabilitatable. Where would you put them? Anywhere you have schools and children and everything, I guess my opinion is they shouldn't be let out of prison, period. I, I'm a victim of molestation myself, and they
3: shouldn't be allowed out at all. Tangen's friend, Lynette Wenzel, says she'll have to change the way she parents now.
1: I have a 10-year-old daughter, and I let her roam, and now, you know, I'm scared to death now. I don't want her out of my house. I, I couldn't even imagine, because I let my, my daughter go to the store, and never again.
3: These women aren't alone in their opposition, More than 25 states and dozens of municipalities restrict where sex offenders can live. Residency restrictions keep sex offenders from living near schools, daycare centers, and other places that children gather.
0: Ernie Allen is director of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He understands why these laws are popular. Still, he says, they often have unintended consequences.
2: Sex offenders have to live somewhere. You know, clustering them are... Having situations like we see in in the Miami area where a bunch of them are living under a bridge is not in society's best interest. The problem is not so much where they live as where they are, what they're doing. Um, In many ways, it creates a false sense of security. Uh, The guy may not live in your neighborhood, may not live within the radius of your elementary school, but is he coming into your community to be a volunteer at your church or, you know, coach your, your child's soccer team?
0: That's where registration comes in. Under the federal Adam Walsh Act of 2006, every released felon with a sex offense is identified online. Allen supports the use of this act to increase public safety.
2: You begin with the premise that two-thirds of America's sex offenders are not in jails and prisons. They're in the community. So at a minimum... We need to know where they are and what they're doing. We need to ensure that someone who has been convicted of molesting children is not holding employment in elementary schools or daycare centers.
0: Today, over 600,000 sex offenders are registered online in the U.S. for crimes large and small.
3: For instance, online registries in 32 states include exhibitionists. In 13 states, they include people caught urinating in public, and in 29 states, they include teens who've been charged with having sex with another teen.
0: Ernie Allen thinks certain crimes don't warrant registration.
2: In a lot of states, there's no way for a member of the public to differentiate a registered offender who was arrested under one of these Romeo and Juliet type things, where a 19-year-old had sex with a with a 15-year-old. Where that's the case, we want to make sure that the public knows that the guy on their street who's a registered sex offender doesn't represent a very high risk.
0: The Romeo-Juliet example is called statutory rape. It presents a special challenge. In most states, laws establish an age of consent. Usually it's somewhere between 16 and 18 years old.
3: Anyone above that age who has sex with someone below it could wind up in prison.
12: Hi, my name is Tyrell Kendi. I'm an inmate here at Lionel Lakes. The date is August 14th, 2006.
3: Tyrell was 17 when he began dating his 15 year old girlfriend. But once he turned 18, their sexual relationship became illegal. That's because it violated age of consent laws.
0: Tyrell is 29 now. He's gangly with dirty blonde hair.
3: To this day, he does not accept the label of sex offender, though it will follow him wherever he goes.
12: I know what went on. You know, I know how much I loved her. I know that it was a relationship I'd have done anything for her. I never did anything to hurt her. I mean, they still want to tell me, yeah, I raped this person. And no, I didn't. Just because it says on a piece of paper, statutory rape, that doesn't mean that I raped this person, you know.
3: We made several phone calls to get her side of the story, but we reached a dead end. So we searched court records. By her account, the couple had sex several times a month over a period of six months. Tyrell insists the sex was consensual.
12: When I go into a relationship, the main thing I'm seeking is a 50-50. If I wanted to do something, I talked it over with her and it was in, a, in agreements with us. You know, if she didn't want to do it, then we didn't do it.
0: Tyrell's life was about to get even more complicated.
3: Tyrell served one year for statutory rape. He returned home, met a different woman, and got engaged. She got pregnant. Then he got caught smoking pot and was sent back to prison for three more years because marijuana use violated his probation.
0: It was during this stint in prison that his daughter Elizabeth was born. But the years in prison were long, and his fiance broke it off with him.
3: Still, Tyrell was determined to be in his daughter's life. How often do you want to see Elizabeth?
12: Every day. <laughs> one of the guys just asked me that too. He's like, well, what do you want us to raise her? You know, I don't want to, I don't want a day apart. I want, you know, I want her there. I want to raise my kid.
3: We visited Tyrell several times in prison. Elizabeth was all he talked about. If there was a light at the end of the tunnel, it was her golden halo.
12: My first day of release, we've already agreed, you know, to go over and, you know, she's going to be home and everything to uh, see her.
3: So you're going to see Elizabeth your first day of release? Yeah. That's intense.
12: Yeah, I don't want to (laughs) wait.
0: Tyrell is sitting beneath a tree, next to his dad's trailer home. He has a can of Mountain Dew in one hand and a toy fishing pole in the other. Elizabeth is tugging at the line. She's three years old.
12: Gotcha, got it, got a big one. Come on, reel it in. (laughs) She's a fighter. Yay!
0: (laughs) It's been four months since Tyrell was released from prison. He met his daughter, as promised, on that first day out.
3: In many ways, Tyrell can be thankful he committed his offense in Minnesota. The state is known for its measured approach toward released sex offenders. For instance, it places greater restrictions on those considered to be of higher risk. Tyrell wasn't in that category. Tyrell also has
0: his ex-fiancee to thank. She could have tried to use his criminal history against him to prevent his relationship with Elizabeth.
3: He remembers the first time he met his daughter. Elizabeth was at her mother's house. Her mom was standing on the porch with a new boyfriend. As Tyrell stepped out of the car, he could feel their eyes on him. Elizabeth
12: wasn't in sight. I was nervous. I didn't know I didn't know what was gonna happen. She's never seen me or nothing, you know and then she's only heard me over the phone so I didn't know like is she gonna like me is she gonna be afraid of me is I mean she's a little kid you know is she gonna know who I am
3: Tyrell climbed the porch steps his former fiance gave him a nod he opened the screen door
12: and Elizabeth was sitting there on the floor by herself playing uh, with Legos building the castle and I said, said her name I go Elizabeth and she turns around and sees me, and she gets up, she come, came walking right up to me, and she goes, "Daddy," and she wrapped her arms around me, and I mean it was just <clears> of <throat> It was a, pretty, pretty great moment.:
0: Tyrell struggled to find work after prison. Eventually, he found a job as a church janitor.
3: He spends his weekends with Elizabeth. He's cooking her hot dogs for lunch.:
12: What did she call you? Uh, what do you call me?
0: Hmm.
5: I heard her say it. He the best. He's me. He's me. Who am I? Daddy Ty. There you go.
0: Unlike other offenders in this story, Tyrell wasn't on probation when we interviewed him after his release. Still, his photo, workplace, and home address will appear in a national sex offender online database for a decade. After a short break, we'll explore how some states are handling the most violent offenders. And we'll meet a man who prosecutors considered locking up forever. I was one of those type of people where if you
6: weren't for me, you were against me. And if you were against me, then, I don't know, God have mercy on you, because I was gonna get you.
3: You're listening to a special report, No Brother of Mine. I'm Diane Richard.
0: And I'm Todd Milby. If you've just tuned in, we're in the final chapter of our documentary about sex offender policies. Because this segment deals with the most violent offenders, it may not be appropriate for all audiences.
12: Count in progress.
6: My name is Mike Andrews. I'm here at uh, Lionel Lakes Correctional Facility. Today's date is August 25th, 2006.
3: You can tell how Michael Andrews has been feeling by the length of his hair. If he's got an afro, he'll be easygoing, even jokey. He'll tell you the big plans he has once he gets released. If he's bald, he'll stare at you until you have to look away.
0: When we first met Michael, he was locked up for raping his girlfriend's 10-year-old daughter.
3: He told us how he groomed his victim He bought her presents. He took her side in arguments. He stretched the rules when her mom wasn't around. That's how it started, he said.
0: It wasn't his first sex crime. Twenty years earlier, Michael and several other men were convicted of gang raping a young woman. I have a history of um, violence. He's also been arrested for the malicious punishment of a child, domestic abuse, possession of a handgun, and possession of a stolen car. He knows his criminal record scares people.
6: The way society looks at us, they have a right to be scared. They have a right to look at us as if we are ugly people because we did ugly things.
3: Michael says his mother was a prostitute and his father, a man he never met, was her pimp. As a teenager, Michael joined a gang. Court records say he was a member of the Disciples.
0: He told us that he ran with the 60s Crips His street name was Smurf.
3: You have talked about a box of your crimes, like a box full of papers that document your crimes. Can you think about when you were perpetrating the crimes? Did you have any foreknowledge of someday I'm really going to regret this? What I hear from you is...
6: Didn't even care. No, I didn't, I didn't care. I was living, uh, I was living life for me. I was a taker. Um, I took from anybody and everybody I could. Um, I was one of those type of people where if you weren't for me, you were against me. And if you were against me, then I don't know, God have mercy on you, because I was gonna get you.
0: Why do you think you were sexually attracted to this child?
6: Well, I think because I wasn't dealing with a lot of my own stuff. Um, One thing I wasn't dealing well with was rejection from age-appropriate women.
3: These days, at 42, he says he's not the threat he once was. But the state of Minnesota isn't so sure. Just months before his scheduled release... Michael received a letter notifying him that he may not get out, perhaps ever. Prosecutors were considering him for something called civil commitment.
6: What happens first is um, you get notified that they're reviewing your case for commitment. And once you get that, it's instant alarm.
0: Civil commitment is a rare and controversial approach to keeping sex offenders off the street for fear of crimes they might commit in the future. After inmates serve their criminal sentences, a small number of them considered to be the worst of the worst, are reviewed for an indefinite sentence in a psychiatric hospital.
3: About 20 states employ civil commitment. Those include California, Minnesota, New York, and Washington.
0: In Minnesota, more than 550 men are institutionalized under civil commitment. That's the highest number per capita in the country.
3: The open-ended commitment lasts until the person can demonstrate that he or she is no longer dangerous.
0: Michael knows that if committed, he might never see the light of day again. I probably would have been better if I'd have murdered
6: somebody, you know, I probably wouldn't be going through this.
0: At least not commitment. They don't commit murderers, do they? Eric Janus opposes civil commitment. He's a lawyer and dean of the William Mitchell College of Law in St. Paul. He's also the author of Failure to Protect, America's Sexual Predator Laws, and the Rise of the Preventive State
5: most of us would do whatever we could do to prevent someone else from being hurt. The problem is that in order to do that, we have to trample on a lot of our fundamental ideas about civil liberties and what our democracy is about.
0: To be civilly committed, a court must decide that someone like Michael has a mental disorder and poses a risk of future sexual harm. The court weighs a number of factors before making that decision including the individual's criminal and mental history, the type of sex crime perpetrated, and
3: age. Proponents call it treatment that helps keep the public safe.
0: Opponents call it a penalty and a threat to civil liberties. Eric Janus.
5: This is a a legal technique that is on the edge of constitutionality. When we make that shift and we begin taking away people's liberty based not on what they've done in the past, but our concern about the risk they pose for the future, that's when we cross over into a very dangerous territory.
0: Many Americans, if not most Americans, seem perfectly willing to cede their liberty or someone else's liberty in exchange for safety.
5: I think that's the key. Many people are willing to cede someone else's liberty in exchange for safety. We think of, quote unquote, these people, sex offenders, as uh, monsters, as less than full citizens. It's clear that the series of laws that we've passed is based on a notion of what I would call a degraded other.
3: Susan Gertner is Ramsey County attorney in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's her office's job to decide whether people like Michael Andrews should get another chance. She supports civil commitment. I think it is appropriate. I think we're safer because of it. Gertner isn't in a position to take any chances.
8: If you get one of them wrong, if you decide you don't have enough evidence to proceed that this isn't a case that you should pursue and you're wrong and they go out and commit another offense that's a horrible situation that no one in my position wants to be in
3: since a highly publicized rape murder in minnesota in 2003 the workload of prosecutors like gertner has exploded in 2002 13 men were considered for civil commitment in the state Just two years later, that number spiked to 170.
0: What happened in 2003 was the kidnapping, rape, and murder of a college student, Drew Shadin. The perpetrator, Alfonso Rodriguez, was a released Minnesota sex offender.
3: Gartner reviews every case being considered for civil commitment in Ramsey County. She points to a stack of files that reaches almost to her shoulders.
8: What kind of toll does that take? It was kind of rough going initially. Because uh, the crimes are graphic, um, the tragedy is apparent, uh, it, 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 could wear, it, it would wear on me. Um, but now, to some extent, my problem is keeping them straight, because it begins to sound very much like the same kinds of behavior over and over again. You get sort of numb.
0: After a suspenseful six months, Michael Landers got what he wanted, yet another chance. Susan Gertner's office decided not to attempt to civilly commit him. She refused to discuss any specific case with us.
3: Michael's been out of prison for two years now. He's had several different apartments and one job. Life on the outside has been tough.
6: I got out thinking things were going to be easy. I was going to get a job. I was going to save some money and everything was going to be cool. And it's not cool. (laughs) It's not.
3: That's because his job, tearing apart wooden pallets, paid only $8 an hour. He worked that job for almost two years. Then he got fired.
0: Without employment, offenders may be more likely to violate parole. Michael told us that he's considered dealing drugs, but that the consequences of getting caught are too great.
6: I can't afford to go back to prison. Prison's played out. I mean, I've been to prison four or five times. I mean, I'm a five-time felon. One more crime puts me off the grid. Um, I can't do it. I would rather hold court in the streets before I go back to prison. I would rather they kill me.
0: It's a late summer day. Michael has invited us to the lake where he used to hang out.
6: Phelan was the park to come to when you wanted to see all the old school cars. I'm talking about Novas,
0: Kudas, um Michael's girlfriend, Andrea, has joined us for the outing. Then They've been together to for a, a year
14: And they've known each other since they were teens. In high school, I had a big, big, big crush.
0: But they hadn't seen each other for decades. Then one day, she ran into him on a bus.
14: So after seeing him again,
3: what's the first thing she did? Andrea went online to see if he had a criminal record.
14: When did he tell you about everything that had happened? Mm. Um, That's a good question. He was forced, because I looked him up on the internet and just told him, tell me and don't lie. And he didn't lie. He told me everything.
0: So why is this past okay with you?
14: I mean, it's not okay. I don't condone what he did, but I I feel that everybody you know deserves a second chance at life. You know, he did. He he messed up. He made a mistake. He did it. He went to prison for it. Okay, let him live his life and get it over it. You know, let it go.
0: After he got out of prison, Michael did something he's always wanted to do: write. and record a rap album. Ha
6: <laughs> ha, yeah, this is Solo, the soloist from BRM, Black Rose Mafia. Um, this song right here, both verses are, it's only two verses, both verses are based on true events. Um, first verse is about some guys who shot me after a crap gang And the second verse is I got jumped by rival gang members. So if you really listen to it, it, it tells about everything that happened. So.
0: Michael may rap about the past, but if he wants Andrea to be in his future, he'd better stay out of prison.
14: I, I'd i say I'd wait, but I don't know if I could. I don't know. But it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let him. <laughs>
0: Why are you confident that, you know, he's going to do the right thing and be okay?
14: I I have a lot of faith in Michael and I think I was a good thing in his life.
0: It's been four years since we started reporting this story. Over that time, we conducted about three dozen interviews with the four offenders that you've heard this hour.
3: Reggie, Ronnie, Tyrell, and Michael have made their way back into society. None has been rearrested.
0: A lot has happened in each of their lives.
9: My name is Reggie, and today is Friday. I'm actually in my new place. Of Reggie, residence.
0: the car salesman, kept taking better job offers, working his way up to a big media company. Then he got laid off, hit, he said, by the bad economy.
3: It was about that time that Reggie stopped at Green to interviews with us. He said he wanted to keep a lower profile.
0: But in a recent email, he wrote that his job search had been frustrating. Twice, after being upfront about his criminal record, he received written job offers, only to get shot down later by HR. He's since gotten work as a salesman for the healthcare industry.
3: Reggie has had a few girlfriends since Tiffany, though he's single now. My name is uh, Ronnie.
13: Well, you know, uh, treatment is still going good, you know, it's still... uh, Ronnie still got
0: the same job, working as a factory handyman. Now he's welding, and he hopes to get certified to operate a forklift. He wants to earn extra money so he can buy a house for his new family.
3: That's because Ronnie got married to a woman with five kids. They met at church. We attended the wedding, though we were asked to leave our recording equipment behind.
0: Because Ronnie's crime was against a child, warning flares went up over his plans to marry. His wife's children are all teenagers.
3: Before the wedding, Ronnie says he and his fiance met with his parole officer and went through intensive therapy sessions together. They continue to attend a weekly couples meeting.
0: Ronnie says his new responsibilities, at work, at home, and at church, help him stay sober and accountable.
12: Name's Tyrell Kennedy. I know my my daughter seems to be getting a lot taller and a lot older. It's like she's growing up real quick. Tyrell
3: still spends weekends with his daughter Elizabeth. He just got his boiler license and is getting a diploma in building maintenance.
0: Although things are going well, Tyrell does have some concerns. The top one is his janitorial job at the church. The man who hired him knows about his criminal record. But the church board has passed a new policy requiring background checks on all employees. Now Tyrell fears he may lose his job.
3: Tyrell is also worried about his neighbors. He's living with his new fiance now in a nice neighborhood, but every six months or so, a sheriff drives up to take his picture and ask him questions. He hopes those visits don't alarm the neighbors. He wants to put down roots.
0: Neighbors don't always want released really release sex offenders around, even if they stay out of trouble.
3: Like Andrea Tangen, We met her at that community notification meeting a few months ago.
1: Hi, Jim. Hello. How are you feeling today? Okay so
0: far. Andrea knows pretty much everybody at the apartment building she manages. It's a three-story cement block building located on a dead-end street.
3: We step inside Andrea's apartment. A TV plays cartoons. A kitten chases her toddler around on the floor. Andrea remembers the day she told neighbors about the sex offenders moving in nearby. As soon as I handed the notices out and got all the parents,
1: I was going knocking door to door to hand them to them after I put up the notice. And all the parents whose children were outside ran outside and got their kids and brought them in the house.
3: But a few months later, some kids started playing outdoors again, unsupervised. Not her
1: kids. I know me personally and a couple other apartments, our children ain't out of our sight do not go outside unless we're there.
3: So it sounds like your alert is still up. I I was wondering if it might have even kind of smoothed over. No, not at all. Not at all. As a survivor of sexual abuse, Andrea says she'll always be vigilant. But she thinks ultimately people have to take responsibility for their own actions.
1: You know, you hear, uh, yes, how they were raised or abused or whatnot. Then you need to go and get help. Go and get help. Before you allow something like that to happen, go and get help. Talk to somebody. Get medicated. Whatever you need to do. Prevent it.
4: been listening to No Brother of Mine, a documentary reported and produced by Diane Richard and Todd Melby. The editor was Robbie Harris. Diane Richard and Todd Melby are senior producers at Two Below Zero, independent producers of public media. For more information on this program, including a list of resources and studies, go to twobelowzero.org. That's the number two, belowzero.org. Support for this program came from the Fund for Investigative Journalism and Individual Donors to Two Below Zero. Thanks for listening.